0: So, are we really doing this?
1: Yep. Too late to turn back now. The music already started. Welcome, everyone, to the Gov Navigators Podcast, a government focused podcast that won't make you seasick. We're the Gov Navigators. I'm Robert Shea. And I'm Adam Hughes. We hope to enlighten and enliven your week with news and insightful, entertaining guests, all on the topic of government management.
0: Enjoy today's episode of Gov Navigators, brought to you by the creative geniuses behind the award winning podcast FedHead.
1: Welcome to another episode of the GovNavigators podcast. I'm Adam Hughes. And I'm Robert Shea. Robert, it was a big week last week on Capitol Hill, a big win for Speaker McCarthy and House Republicans, potentially all Republicans. He was able to pass a debt ceiling increase bill that had a host of policy changes and funding changes that are non-starters for the Biden administration. And I think it's really complicated the outlook for not only the debt ceiling increase, but the budget and appropriations and continuing to fund the government uh, at the end of the fiscal year this year. Uh, it certainly strengthens the Speaker McCarthy's hand in the negotiations, but complicates where we're going forward from here. What, what was your read on the vote last week and the bill that passed?
0: So is this, this what happens when I let you start? You just go Dark? And and gloomy on me. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm
1: sorry. How was your week, Robert? How was
0: your week? <laughs> it was fine. I do think it's time we start broaching the subject because feels like we're all tied to a train track with the impending debt ceiling date, and and of course the end of the fiscal year. The the bill you mentioned. It was interesting to watch it get passed. It was. It did get passed. It did strengthen the speaker's hand. But it was really hard. It changed so much at the last minute, too. That's right. And it showed some negotiation with different factions in the party. And it uh, reinforces how difficult it's going to be to get a debt ceiling bill done, full year appropriation, a full year continuing resolution, even a short term CR. I think is going to be really hard to get done. And I think it's important people start paying attention to that now, start preparing for that eventuality
1: totally true and when you have such slim majorities when five members can scuttle a, a negotiation and a deal that's been reached with so many other players involved it it makes any negotiation on any issue really hard and and I don't think the stakes could be higher for the ones that we're talking about
0: it's a little weird on the debt ceiling because we don't know exactly what date uh, this is going to really impact us so it's important to get it done as soon as possible with the democrats not coming to the table it's it's not clear when we're going to see progress.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, let's let's, let's move let's to
0: happier times. Move to the other side of the spectrum. Very excited to see OPM release its data strategy. I know you were excited about that too.
1: The OPM chief data officer, Ted Kauk, is a is an old friend. They've known him for a long time. I know you've done a lot of work with him and the particularly seeing immediately the kudos that they received for what they put out, I think should be heartening for him and his team at OPM who put this together. No small amount of work to create this. Tell us a little about the, I know you've taken a look at it and gotten in depth with it today. Just give us a quick overview of what's in it and and why you think it's important.
0: Yeah, just to reinforce your kudos for Ted Kuck and his team over at OPM. He also, of course, leads the CDO Council and has done a great job there. It's an ambitious strategy, four main goals, one of which encompasses all of the federal government trying to trying to drive a data driven culture across the federal government, improving the data skills
1: agencies have in-house. His work on the CDO council is part of that too, right? Of course, that, I, of course. Know, and he, we we've talked to him and I think I think he was he might have been the last guest on the previous podcast not to be named. Maybe, right. I'd have to check that. But but I know I do remember him talking about the importance of that cultural growth and what he's trying to do and others um, through the CDO Council to kind of build that community. Second yeah. goal
0: relates to data products and they released two dashboards, one of which focuses on the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey and another on the cyber workforce. You can see clearly that 42% of employees say that in their work unit, Poor performers remain in the work unit and continue to underperform. This is a big issue that impacts uh, employee engagement. In cyber, you can see the satisfaction agencies have with uh, the hiring process for bringing on the, those critical workers. And it's not great. There's a lot of room for improvement, but kudos for OPM for saying this. Goal three refers to technology just in improving the, the way we're collecting and using data. And then goal four is making sure that we've got strong data governance, including privacy, security, and management. As you know, OPM responsible for one of the biggest breaches in government history, uh, stepping up to say they're gonna make sure that the, the data that they possess is gonna have strong security and privacy standards.
1: Yeah, I, I remember that. I was actually there um, running the CIO council during that breach. So that immediately took over the entire agenda well, <laughs> of I bet, almost the entire I bet. government IT apparatus. Yeah, it seems like uh, OPM is making a lot of progress in this area and particularly putting a lot of this info out publicly is a great way to to bring some some more focus on making sure that improvements continue. It's good that we're ending this segment on a high. Very good. Yes. And and Robert, you mentioned cybersecurity, and our guest this week uh, knows cybersecurity inside and out. It was actually, he references the OPM data breach uh, on the segment with him. So we're excited to, to hear what he has to say next. A little teaser.
0: You know, Adam, we've talked a lot about the GEO high risk list, and one of the more ambitious areas listed on there is ensuring the cybersecurity of the nation. We're lucky today to have the author of a recent report by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, National Academy of Public Administration, and Centro Studi Americani. let's see if I got that right, called Preparing Governments for Future Shocks, an Action Plan to Build Cyber Resilience in a World of Uncertainty. We've got the legend, Tony Scott, former federal CIO, here with us to tell us about the report. Tony, thanks for joining us.
2: It's my pleasure.
0: So uh, just start by telling us about your impressive background, your your journey through uh, information technology management at so many
2: uh, fascinating areas. Sure. Well, kind of working backwards, I'm currently the CEO of a cybersecurity company and Uh, Plano, Texas, called Intrusion. And uh, we basically block traffic going to or coming from the internet based on reputation. So it's a little different than the typical technology. Before that, we might um, might be
0: blocked based on that criterion.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Before that, uh, for uh, about four years, um, I was uh, investing in early stage cybersecurity companies and looked at tons of things in that period of time. Before that, I was federal CIO for the last two years of the Obama administration. Probably the most remarkable event there was the big OPM breach, which happened before I got there, but we didn't discover it until after I got there. So we spent a good two years uh, working on that. And then uh, before that, I was CIO at VMware, uh, CIO at Microsoft, CIO at the Walt Disney Company and CTO at General Motors and a bunch of jobs in IT before that. So been around a while and seen a bunch of interesting stuff in We're my career, let's just say.
1: Seen seen a lot and done a lot too. Tony, it's great to chat with you again. Tell us a little bit about the report. What was the impetus for this? Why working with these groups and why focusing on the report at
2: this time? Well, I think there was a realization among any number of people, that as we came out of COVID, there was a much greater, I think, recognition on exposure that not only governments had, but large institutions had when it came to uh, the notion of resilience. And in particular, in this case, cyber resilience. And I think as organizations started to look at their risk profile and sort of the changing nature of cybersecurity over time there was an increased concern that we needed to do more particularly from a government perspective on making sure we were creating a more resilient capability both in government and also the things that government is responsible for so that was kind of the impetus IBM Center for Government uh, pulled the stakeholders together from a pretty wide variety of places that it would have both input and also the ability to start to shape that. And we had two sessions, one in D.C. and one in uh, Rome, Italy. So that oh, was kind now of... It's,
0: the... Now it's clearing up. Now wow. it's clearing up why, <laughs> why we did this. Um
2: I didn't get to go to Rome, though, Oh, by the way. oh there you go. Sorry just, about just that. Just zoomed <laughs> in. <laughs> Dan
0: Chenick, the head of the Dan probably went. Probably yeah. 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 I mentioned GAO's high risk list, which was uh, released recently. and And they actually bumped the nation's response to cybersecurity largely because of improved leadership focus on the problem. But they highlighted some weaknesses like capacity. The ability to recruit and retain people across a wide spectrum of critical and federal and non-federal infrastructure. Can you comment on those two things in, in relation to what your report found, what the roundtables highlighted with respect to leadership attention and the ability to actually find the people to do this stuff?
2: Sure. And and this was a huge focus of both groups actually. Um, and and the, I think there was a recognition that the government plays a big role from a leadership perspective in terms of highlighting what should be worked on and in what order and you know, creating the right kind of focus. And one of those areas you just mentioned was the talent uh, issue. There's a huge gap as I think everybody understands now between the resources that are needed and the available supply of those resources. And that's global. It's it's not a problem that's unique to the U.S. Uh, as we heard in, you know, the the European group uh, in in Rome, they right out of the gate said this is one of the biggest issues that we face. Some of the observations were quite interesting, though, and and a couple in particular that we highlighted in the report. One is that many of the jobs actually don't require a college degree Hmm. and for a lot of the roles still when you go look at job descriptions and so on they almost always require a four-year degree of some kind and i think there was broad recognition among the group that there are tons of jobs that just don't require a four-year degree and that we need to change policy uh, as well as practice in in many places. The other thing that I found interesting uh, in the conversations was the recognition that you need people with a pretty wide variety of backgrounds. You need people who are skilled in art and music mm. and business and medicine and the law and, you know, you pick any of the classic disciplines and that what is needed is this combination of skill in some area and also cybersecurity skills. And, and I think the the myth has been that you needed to be a geek and computer science uh, background and so on in order to play any kind of role in cybersecurity at all. Mm. And the reality is that a lot of the cybersecurity skills can be taught, but people who naturally have those skills today often don't have the background in these other disciplines that that you really need and and that's driven by the fact that every part of our lives are digitizing they're yeah you know <laughs> that, that you can't escape it these days and so you need this cross-section so the, the a lot expertise. of discussion on that yeah yeah that's yeah, interesting I, I think it was uh appropriate
1: of, of the the sections and kind of recommendations and takeaways in the report, that I found the most interesting was the one about aligning public and private priorities and work. When I was CIO Council, that was important, but there wasn't a lot of activity, right? and then you you've got to make sure you're including places like the national security council and the the focus at DHS on critical infrastructure now there's CISA is involved and has been created and I'm sure they're they're playing a huge role in that talk a little bit about that section and you know what how that came about and the importance of that level of coordination you talked about government being a leader and helping to set priorities and what's the role for the private sector and how is that how is that collaboration working
2: well i think Everyone in both sessions agreed that this was an area that more work was needed. And at the same time, recognizing that there had been some progress. You have industry groups all over the world that have sort of gotten together and started to do more information sharing. There's been an escalation of information sharing between the private sector and government every year it's it's getting a little bit better but the recognition also was that it's not fast enough and not enough enough to sort of equal the playing field if you will the bad guys have you know virtually unlimited resources and it's a very asymmetric world today it's one where you know the cost to mount an attack is way lower than the cost to defend against Mm. attacks. But one of the ways out of that imbalance is for way better information sharing, but also leadership. And uh, one of the sidebar discussions I had with some of the groups was something that stays strong in my memory when uh, in the 90s during the Reagan era, we had a manufacturing quality crisis Uh, in the U.S. and we were competing against Japan or trying to in Germany and other places that had way better quality and we established the Baldrige Award we got the nation focused on improving quality Um, this was the whole Six Sigma era and all of that sort of stuff and because of that focus leadership in the government and industry picking up on this as a national imperative in a pretty short period of time really, five, eight years, we made dramatic progress and now there's no heartburn about American quality. You know, it's, it's resolved. We need to have that same kind of focus uh, when it comes to cybersecurity and cyber resilience. Oddly enough, I'm still on the Baldridge Foundation board and cyber is one of the focus areas now. It's moved away from manufacturing and moved into healthcare and other, uh, and, and cyber. Uh, that wasn't in the report, but I'm giving you a little color That's of great. conversations around the report. That's really but great. You can, you can see the effect that, you know, the right kind of leadership and the right kind of collaboration with industry can have a huge effect both economically and in terms of unity of uh, focus.
0: Do we have a common way of measuring progress in the area? I mean, you, you compared this to the move to improve quality. That seems like an area where there's room for error. This is not one where we should be tolerating any error, I would think, even though right now we're living in an environment that's basically a sieve. How, how do you how do you measure what sufficient progress in the arena is?
2: Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is, and, and this was discussed, is reporting. You know, you need a system of uh, of collection of data of reporting when incidents occur, and you need things like attribution, who's doing it, and you need a number of other things in order to be able to actually measure what's going on um, we do understand a lot as it turns out about the economic impact and it affects everything we do the The price of everything we do in the world has some cost built into it because of cybersecurity. and there's been some great studies that you know allow you to sort of begin to approximate what that cost is and so that's i think at least a partial way of measuring whether we're we're making progress or not but there are others and i think there's room for more invention in that space uh, as well that's great tony this is a fascinating
1: report a really interesting conversation thank you so much for joining us and sharing this as we're wrapping up what what's next with the report are you still are you still going out and sharing it and meeting with folks to talk about it? Or is there a next steps as part of the work with these organizations?
2: Well, RSA, one of the biggest security shows in the world, is actually next week in San Francisco. And this is going to be a topic of discussion there. But I think resilience at the end of the day is something that's built up over time. You know, the, the entire technical infrastructure that we have today has been created over, you know, decades. And I think one of the important things about this report is that we have come to recognize that, you know, resilience wasn't necessarily a part of the design of some of what we have in place. Mm -hmm. And so there needs to be a lot more thought going into that. And uh, if we're to live after some of these events that occur, not just cyber hacks, but, environmental issues and so on, all affect our infrastructure, whether it's hurricanes or you know other natural events or, or it's guys doing something bad. Uh, we need a lot more resilience. So I think there's going to be a lot more discussion. I was glad to see IBM uh, sponsor this activity, and I look forward to more conversation in the future.
0: Greg, well, thanks for spending a few minutes with us to talk about it.
2: My pleasure
1: Adam, what's in the week ahead well after after the exhausting arm twisting night on the House floor last week, they are in recess again. so if they if they didn't get enough rest during the holiday Easter holiday break, they're off for another week. Uh, but the Senate is in. And we'll have to keep an eye on actions from the Biden administration responding to the the actions in the House and the debt ceiling to see if anything comes of that. What about you? What's on your radar? I can't believe you have to ask. It's the annual
0: AGA PIO CFO Summit. I forgot. Issues impacting the performance improvement officer and chief financial officer communities. Uh, are shared in a in a half-day session. We've got Diana Epstein, the, who leads the Evidence team at OMB. We've got Ted Kalk, who we talked about, the chief data officer at OPM and the chair of the CDO Council. And wrapping up is Lauren DeYoung-Schulman, a podcast regular in days past, to talk about the overall president's management agenda. She's been on the on the job for a few months now so it'll be interesting to hear what she has to say about what she's learned and what what's ahead for the PMA That sounds
1: like a great lineup and of course you you'll be there as well
0: I'll be there just flitting around networking <laughs> It starts at 7.30 Will
1: I see you there? 7.30? God no You know what they say Yeah <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gov Navigators podcast brought to you by gov navigators
0: we sure hope you enjoyed it and learned something in the process
1: and didn't get seasick
0: right of course
1: if you want to know more about us and what we're up to please visit govnavigators.com ahoy oh jeez